This is Symposium. After I finished the book, I wanted to know exactly what the truth behind that was. Krishna opens his mouth and she looks at his mouth and she sees the whole universe. If you go back and watch Friends, they never talk about politics. And it's not a big surprise, but it's kind of like, really? Like it never came up? He had to reevaluate his whole student senate and they, he straight up told them we need to reevaluate ourselves and check ourselves. Which is fascinating and wonderful in so many different ways. Before I spoke with Makoto Takata about her undergraduate symposium project, I wasn't especially familiar with the character of Krishna, a major Hindu deity. When I hear the name, what I imagine is like a giant man who's sitting in the clouds and adorned with fine fabrics and gold jewelry. I did a quick Google image search to see how close my mental image is to common depictions of Krishna. A lot of the paintings that come up feature a man with powder blue skin and vibrant orange pants, a necklace of flowers, and lots of gold jewelry. In some paintings, he has this really elaborate golden headpiece covered in gemstones. So I'm a little off, but I'm right in that he's seen as this grand celestial figure. Pretty unsurprising and typical of a deity. But what I am surprised by is that many of the images depict Krishna as a child. Here's Makoto Takata, an EMU senior double majoring in English language and religious studies, on her project titled Children and Childhood in the Bhagavata Purana and its Theatrical Traditions. She analyzes the complex character of Krishna, the Hindu texts that describe him, and what they suggest about childhood. We primarily know Krishna in the West from a text called the Bhagavad Gita, which is the, one of the most commonly taught texts in Hinduism classes, world religions classes. If people have heard of Krishna at all, it's probably because of the efforts of the Hare Krishna movement, um, which is the thing that got me. Um, and in it, Krishna is on a battlefield participating in this war in an epic called the Mahabharata. It's the tale of a great war between two kingdoms, kind of like the Iliad. And he plays the role of this kind of wise philosopher who's counseling his friend Arjuna who doesn't want to fight and he reveals to Arjuna his supreme form as as God and he has you know a thousand faces and a thousand eyes and he you know makes up everything and there and he it's this very kind of grand kind of mysterious portrayal of of God and so that's from the second half of Krishna's life where Krishna is an adult but that has a very different character and tone from the stories from the first half of Krishna's life, where he's a child slash adolescent. The mythology, the stories tell us that he is born under miraculous circumstances. Um, he is pursued by an evil king who, is a, who has had a prophecy that Krishna is going to kill him. And so he, he is stolen away to his uncle's house in a place called Vrindavan, which is this pastoral, idyllic, cowherding village. This green, luscious forest where he lives a very playful and joyful life among the rural cowherd farmer community that's there. These stories of Krishna's childhood are largely in the 10th section of the Bhagavata Purana. According to Makoto, it takes up about a fourth of the text. There are about 18,000 verses in the text overall, and these stories of Krishna's youth kind of read like fables or fairy tales. Often Western readers come knowing, you know, the Krishna who's grown up to become this prince and this ruler, and he speaks this great philosophical text, and they 
you know, try to investigate more and they read some of the early childhood stories and they sound like, they, they read like fantastical fairy tales. There are lots of stories about various demons who are sent by the evil king to kill Krishna who are often, you know, anthropomorphized. There's a story about, you know, a great river snake who has ten heads and Krishna beats him up and dances on all of his ten heads. And you also realize that Krishna is kind of, far from being this kind of grandiose figure, is kind of a punk. He loves to mess with people. He loves to play pranks. He loves to steal things. But, you know, through all of his cheeky, subversive misbehavior, he reveals often his divinity. Like, there's a great story early on when Krishna's foster mother, Yashoda, is cooking something and um, a boy, one of Krishna's brothers, Balaram, comes running to her saying that Krishna has eaten dirt and she needs to punish him. So she goes and she demands Krishna open his mouth and Krishna opens his mouth and she looks in his mouth and she sees the whole universe. She sees the stars and the planets and all of the other universes and she is totally mesmerized and absolutely floored by this revelation but krishna knowing that you know if my mom knows that i'm god then we won't have the same relationship and so he kind of does a jedi mind trick on his mother um yoga maya it's called this illusion that makes the residents of vrindavan forget that krishna is god and she goes just back to playing with him as a normal toddler. One of the stories from the Bhagavata Purana explains why Krishna is so often depicted playing the flute. One of the most notorious parts of Krishna's early life is his stories about his relationships with the women of Vrindavan. There's a very famous story where Krishna plays his flute, his all-enchanting flute, in the forest at night, and all of the married women, the gopis, the cowherd women of the town, leave their husbands and their brothers and their boyfriends and their families and go to the forest to dance with Krishna. And, you know, on the surface, you look at this and you're like, what kind of a god is this, you know? And the answer to that kind of is that the stories that Krishna, these Vrindavan stories, Leela, they're called. Leela literally means play, both in the sense of playfulness and like a play, like a stage play. Um, these kind of stories that God comes down and enacts for us so we can connect with them and we can plug our relationship with God into the characters and the stories. But this text isn't only about Krishna. Many of the stories feature other children. For the most part, these children aren't other deities, but typical human children that do deity-like things. They're portrayed as kind of small adults who often, uh, you know, are able to perform massive austerities, like go into a cave and meditate for astounding amounts of time, like they're devotional prodigies. There's often a pattern of these relationships of the saintly child character with the dysfunctional adult characters around him who are enmeshed in this material world of clinging and attachment and maya or illusion. And so also looking at the Bhagavata, what it has to say about childhood itself, its instructions on what childhood is for and childhood is like is not that very enthusiastic 
She says that in Hinduism, birth into the world isn't always seen as a good thing. It's a sign that someone still has material desires and earthly attachments, so they need to go through a cycle of reincarnation until they can overcome those desires. To put it bluntly, being born means that in your previous life, you've failed to do that. Um, there was, I remember I was in the Hare Krishna temple for the first time and there was a kid's birthday party going on in another room. And they sang the happy birthday verse. And then they sang a verse that went, May you never take birth again. May you never take birth again. It's amazing. Um, hilarious. Wonderful. Um, but um, there's passages that describe the pains particularly of the fetus in the womb it's the, the experience of being in a womb a trapped inside a womb where we may think oh the womb of the mother is very, it's portrayed as a quite scary horrifying place and so makoto points out that there's this split in the texts between these two portrayals of childhood on one hand there are stories of children who are saintly and grounded acting as teachers to the adults around them they seem to skip over childhood and dive into maturity and religious devotion. But on the other hand... Krishna's Leela kind of plays by different rules and kind of revels in the experience of childhood and being young. Krishna himself seems to balance godliness and this punk, cheeky childishness. Yeah, and that's the tension I explore in the paper. And when I talk about drama and dramatic traditions based on the... Bhagavata Purana, I highlight an example where this tension is kind of balanced in a very interesting way. So there's a drama based on the story I told you about, the great circle dance of Krishna and Mary Gopis. And there's a tradition in India, specifically in this Braj region of Uttar Pradesh, where various dramas of Krishna's life will be performed, particularly during um, the rainy season. That's when the, the Kartik month of the Hindu calendar happens, which is supposed to be very sacred to the worshippers of Krishna. And so drama is a big part of that. And um, there's a tradition that goes back at, le um, at least to around the 1400 of children performing on stage um, as Krishna and the gopis, and Krishna and his friends. And it's just boy actors that are doing this nowadays. Many authors speculate that originally there were boy and girl actors both on stage, um, and there are various reasons I wanted to explain why. More modern scholarship is showing that it has more to do with um, Brahminical Vedic ideas about women and impurity. And often, you know, you'll see that these actors kind of are stand-ins for Radha and Krishna, and the audiences can experience, can have a divine encounter through the bhav or the mood that these children bring to the performances on stage. Um, the, the watching of the play itself and the imbibing of the message of the stories is seen as in, it, in itself to be a kind of a communion with the deity. And often what will happen is at the end of a performance, the actors will pose like Radha and Krishna and the gopis as they would if they were, you know, a diorama of images, murtis, the statues, idols, quote unquote, in a temple and people wave 
lights in front of them, like the arati ceremony and a, a form of worship in the temple, where people will offer food to them. And it creates this kind of really interesting interactive experience, like theatrical experience where, you know, in, when, you know, if you go to a temple to go see the image of Krishna, you can offer some sweets to Krishna and, you know, place it on the altar and say a prayer and then take the food back um, as prashad, as, you know, blessed food. But here you can actually, you know, you can take a laddu, a little, or gulab jamun or whatever delicious Indian sweet you have, and, and you can actually give it to Krishna and watch Krishna stuff it in his mouth. In these plays, children are seen as the vehicle through which the, the feeling, the taste of these relationships is conveyed. And in the play that's recorded in John Stratton Hawley's book, that's portrayed in a very striking way because in the story, the play version adds two characters who are not found in the original Bhagavata Purana text, but are the product of other texts and you know later folk additions onto this story. And they are both, both of them are played by adults and both of them try to enter Krishna's dance for their own purposes. And both of them are rejected or kept out in some way. And so you have, in effect, this, this group of children, the Krishna and the gopis, who are participating in this rasa dance and these two adults who want to enter into it. And based on their intentions, either they are rejected from it outright of the privilege of entering Krishna's Leela, or they must undergo some sort of vital, essential transformation of their character and their attitude in order to be able to enter into it. And so childhood is kind of seen as the conduit and not just you know any childhood, childhood that is very familiar. There's a rule about the plays where you cannot be a cast member unless you've grown up in Vrindavan. And so the, the, the boys on stage are familiar to everyone in the, the town and recognized by everyone in the town as, you know, the boys that perform these stories by this or that, you know, temple theatrical company. Um, and so there's something very unmystified about it and very earthly and very everyday in the way that these children are celebrated and that the divine is seen through them. Much like Krishna, this performance, this tradition, manages to balance both being spiritually grounded, but also the value that we place in the experience of being a child. There's this tension between seeing being the text being very concerned about childhood and family life, and what that means for people pursuing devotion to God, um, who are you know also have children and families and are kind of entangled in worldly life what that means for one's spiritual pursuits is a question of great anxiety in the text. And also having this notion that children are closer to God, that children, that you can see the divine in a child more deeply than you can in, you know, other adults. And that, and that in order to understand God, you have to become in a way like a child. There's one story that I neglected to talk about, um, and I bring it at the end of my paper, because there's this very positive attitude towards childhood that's displayed in the tradition and in the 10th skanda. Uh, there's a story about a man named Ajimil, who is a 
pious you know, Brahmin priest who one it was very sheltered, um, very you know shielded from worldly things. He grows up very trained in ritual, and he's picking flowers for a ritual in the forest when he happens upon a hunter and a prostitute in sexual union, and he is possessed by this image. He's never seen anything like it before, and he's possessed by lustful thoughts. And he ends up leaving his wife and his children and moving in with the prostitute that he saw and having children with her. And he has this little boy whose name is Narayan. Narayan is one of the names of Krishna, one of the names of God. And this boy kind of becomes his pride and joy. He's kind of terribly regretful about his life, but he, he pours his energy into his, into his kid. And when he's dying, he sees the Yamadutas, the servants of Yama, the god of death, come to drag him to hell for his sins. And he cries out to his son on the other side of the room. He cries out, Narayan, Narayan, not intending to call out to Narayan, to Vishnu, to God, calling out to his son, come be my, be my, my bedside while I die. But, but before he can be dragged down to hell, he's stopped by these heavenly figures who come. They're servants of Vishnu who say, you can't touch him, he gets to live. And the Yamajutas say, of course, but why? And the reply is that he said God's name at the time of death with a surrendered heart. And this has purified him of all of his sins. And, and so he gets another chance. And it's usually talked about the stories about, you know, God's grace, the stories about the power of God's names for salvation. But it's also about the love that parents have for their children. And the reason that Ajimal has a surrendered heart in order to cry out is this love, this very earthly, not divine love that he has for his toddler. And you see a very nuanced perspective come out of the text that's not necessarily present in most other sections of the 18,000 verse masterpiece that is the Pagavata Purana that sheds another light on these issues and kind of rounds out the portrayal of what the, this text has to say about this topic in a very interesting way. In addition to our paper, Makoto also organized a stage reading of a play that she wrote called Bala Gopal, Balagopal is a name for young Krishna, and the play follows some of the major stories of Krishna's life. Makoto says the writing and style of the play borrows from classical Sanskrit dramas and rural Hindu devotional dramas. She gathered some friends to rehearse and perform the stage reading, which involved both a reading of the script and live music to accompany the performance, and you can find a video of that on our website. Thank you so much to Makoto for sharing her work with me. To read her abstract or learn more about the undergraduate symposium, visit emish.edu forward slash symposium. You can find more stories like this at easternecho.com, and you can reach our podcast section via email at podcast at easternecho.com. This episode of Symposium was written and produced by myself, Ronia Kabunsag, and special thanks to Amy Berenger for all her help with this series. Normally, right here, I would say see you next Tuesday, but we will not have an episode next week. Our team is taking a short break, but we'll be back soon with just a few more episodes to wrap up the summer. But thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back soon.